Hello, you're listening to Thank You Enjoy, a podcast on Asian American media and culture. I'm Ethan, one of the co-hosts, and you're listening to our episode on Raya and the Last Dragon. As you can tell from this narration and production quality, this will be a very different episode of Thank You Enjoy compared to our previous episodes, and there are a number of reasons why that is the case. When Allison, Casey, and I talked about doing an episode on Raya and the Last Dragon, the first topic that came up in our conversation was the fact that we were three East Asian podcast creators. Given that Raya and the Last Dragon is a cultural milestone, particularly for the Southeast Asian community, we felt that this was a film that could not simply be analyzed by us, three East Asian podcast creators. So we decided to reach out to our friends of the show from Southeast Asian backgrounds and ask for them to weigh in on the film. Now, due to the wide diversity and scope of the film's representation, as well as the logistical difficulties that would surely result in inviting multiple guests in a single episode, we decided that I would meet and record individually with our guests and create an essay-style episode exploring the common threads between our conversations. The result? I conducted three interviews with three friends of the show who have all been personally and professionally involved in activism, media, and entertainment. Here are the three friends I interviewed. First thing first, can you state your name? Yeah, my name is Cindy Chu. Cindy Chu is a friend of the show. She is a first-generation Cambodian-American who served as co-president of the United Khmer Students at UCLA, UCLA's Cambodian-American Student Union, where she hosted and facilitated panels about Cambodian-American history and culture. More recently, she was featured in the student film Cambodia Town, Not For Sale, a documentary film about Cambodia Town in Long Beach, California, and how it is currently facing threats of displacement, gentrification, and redevelopment. Cindy is a friend of the show and joined us during our podcast watch party. Our second interviewee took the liberty of introducing herself with her full name. Ray Jillian Ramiskel Rivera, and why that's really important is because Ramiskel and Rivera are often used as um, Filipino names. Ray Jillian Ramiskel Rivera is a first-generation Filipino-American software developer for a themed entertainment company that focuses on amusement parks. Ray's career is positioned at the intersection of media, entertainment, and technology, making her the perfect friend of the show to interview for this episode. Also a fun fact, this was the only interview that we've done on this show that was done in person. Our third and final interviewee was someone I personally and professionally know. My name is Anna Nguyen. Anna Nguyen is a first-generation Vietnamese-American friend of the show. She double majored in rhetoric and media studies at UC Berkeley. She is a marketing analyst at Yamaha Music who has a passion for the music industry. Anna and I met at Yamaha and have been friends since then, sharing in our love for the music industry and music in general. In each interview, I asked our guests a shared set of questions that all three of them were asked, and a personal set of questions specifically related to each guest's cultural identity, career, and personal experiences. The set of answers I got were diverse. Some answers shared the same opinions and sentiments on certain aspects of the film, while others diverged in opinion over the same creative choices and aspects. However, all of the answers shared the same common theme on Asian American media representation and reminded me just how complicated and complex the conversation is when it comes to Asian American media across generations. The first question I asked was, what did they think of the film? Here is Cindy's answer. Cindy, overall, what do you think of the film? Um, it was fun. <laughs> um, I would say that I thought it was a, a really well-researched film with a lot of like cultural easter eggs that like had really good animation like the water was really <laughs> was really crazy when i uh when i saw that 
beyond the cultural aspect, I thought it was a fun film, but I did not think it was one of Disney's like most memorable films in terms of like plot and pacing <laughs> and things like that, but definitely has its place, I guess, in, in kind of the Disney collection um, and also like a, a special place for Southeast Asian cultures and communities. Anna had a similar response to Cindy's. I definitely enjoyed it. It was definitely uh, an enjoyable watching experience, but I probably, I didn't feel as moved perhaps um, as some of the other Disney films I've watched uh, in the past. I, I really, I felt aesthetically it was definitely gorgeous and the imagery was was so nice to watch, but the storyline felt a bit generic. Um, I, I had trouble feeling connected, I guess, maybe to the heroine. And for me personally, I always uh, look out for the character arcs or that's how I feel connected to a film uh, usually. And I guess I didn't really feel a strong character arc in this one, but overall, I would say I enjoyed it. Cindy and Anna seem to share the same sentiment that the film was gorgeous, incredibly detailed, fun, but ultimately not that memorable. Ray, on the other hand, seemed to have a different opinion. I was not disappointed. I actually really enjoyed Ryan and the Last Dragon and it, like I felt like it was just the right amount of representation just of, of Southeast Asia. I mean, you're talking about covering a film that basically tries to encapsulate 11 different countries, right? In, in, in probably like, I think it was an hour 30, maybe two hour film. And there were subtle blends that were basically created in this fantasy world. And I feel like to do it that way is very smart of um, Disney. There's certainly a lot to unpack from these answers individually. But what did interest me was that all three of our friends seemed to enjoy the movie overall. The differences only arose when the conversation came to representation and cultural value. One undeniable thing about the film was the sheer level of cultural detail. I think at the beginning, um, like in the first five or ten minutes of the film, like it, it was pretty fun. Like I was watching the movie and going, oh, like I recognize this. Oh, I recognize this. The pants were reminiscent of like a kabun, which is a Cambodian traditional pants and a spy, which is like a Cambodian traditional top. The character of Boon, I really appreciated just because like when I saw the spelling of his name also it was spelled B-O-U-N. And like the O-U making the O sound is very specific to, um, if not Cambodian, then maybe Southeast Asian, I'm not 100% sure, but that spelling is definitely something that I see in Cambodian names a lot. I know I made a joke about like, wow, child labor is so Southeast Asia, <laughs> but, but honestly, like, I was like, yeah, when you go to Southeast Asia, you do see kids running shops um, or like selling food on the street and things like that. Uh, so I just like love the character of Boone. And then I thought it was cool that the Drune actually turned the characters into stone because I thought that evoked the same kind of imagery as, as Angkor Wat because in, within Angkor Wat, which is these series of gigantic temples made of stone, um, a lot of the walls 
in those stones are carved with images of like Apsara dancers, of like different gods and goddesses and things like that. And I feel like like that kind of stone people imagery was present, which I really liked. So culturally, I thought it was like really well researched. They did like a really good job and it was exciting to be able to watch the movie and go, oh, I know this, oh, I know this um, and things like that. Ray also recognized pieces of Filipino culture in the film. The weapons of choice were really cool too. A lot of it was Filipino inspired, especially from the indigenous cultures that yes. we have. What I liked too was the the transportation and the way that some of the villages were depicted. Like they had Baha'i Gobos, they had um, a boon, like a, a boon boat. Ray also attended a panel with the writers of Raya and the Last Dragon, and she recalled a story that the writers shared about the inclusion of the fruit known as Rambatan in the film. One of the things that the writers had mentioned in the panel is, okay, we need to we need to do fruit now, and we have a Rambatan in the story. Let's paint it blue. Mm-hmm. And the and this was what made me smile is that leadership was saying, wait, wait, wait. Why, why make it blue? You don't have to conceal too much and take away too much of the actual culture. Like it's, it's a fruit. Like people should know more about Southeast Asian fruit, foods, everything, you know, like try not to sugarcoat it or blanket it with so much fantasy. Like this is still trying to represent. I found this anecdote quite interesting. Despite the fact that Ryan the Last Dragon takes place in Kamandra, a fictional fantasy land that represents an amalgamation of Southeast Asian cultures, there was still that conversation about to what extent certain cultural details should be made into fantasy and whether cultural details should just be rooted in realism and a part of the fantasy. Here's what Anna shared about her favorite pieces of Vietnamese culture in the film. They had something called bante, which is a... uh a rice, a sticky rice cake that we eat for the Lunar New Year. Um, so that was awesome to see uh, a food represented in the film. I, I never see that in animated things. So that was really cool. So yeah, definitely some symbols there. All of our friends agreed that the sheer level of detail and beauty in Raya was worthy of praise. But what struck my curiosity was that Anna and Cindy still had a mixed reaction to the film's representation. When I asked why that was the case to them, Anna shared her thoughts these symbols and yeah, the movie in general kind of felt like representation for representation's sake. Mm. Um, I don't think the story hit home with me or made me necessarily feel like my history and culture being showcased, uh, except through these aesthetic elements. You know, I think what makes a culture is its people. And I didn't really see that represented through the characters. That's what I was really looking for, you know, that culture, um, do people kind of like, for example, in Moana, you see her sailing the islands, which is like a huge, you know, facet of, of that culture and like how she interacts with her family. And this one, I guess I didn't really see the culture represented through Raya or through some of the characters that strongly, just through, you know, these kind of aesthetic tidbits here and there. Anna seemed to feel that the cultural details in the film were more aesthetically driven and surface level, serving little impact on an otherwise generic adventure storyline and character arc. When I asked Cindy about her mixed response to the film, she made an interesting comment about Raya's position of power and privilege in the film. In the Discord, I also 
made a joke that said, funny how Raya like believes in trust and unity when she's the princess of the wealthiest country in Kumandra. <laughs> like, I don't want to put too much pressure on a Disney movie. I know that princesses and idealism is kind of their deal. But for me, it, it felt kind of weird to see, like, this is supposed to be a story about Southeast Asia. And Southeast Asia is a region which is historically very, like, war-torn and, like, filled with poverty and things like that. Um, so to see that story told from the viewpoint of someone who is, like, arguably, like, the most privileged person in the entire <laughs> in the entire movie and then for her to go on and then like not explicitly learn that oh maybe these other tribes did bad things because they didn't have resources um, like I know at the beginning the antagonist mentioned like oh we I never eat rice for her to like not explicitly understand that um, and to just like promote harmony and unity and not understand where and why like the other nations are doing what they do. I, it just like felt a little disingenuous and it, it made me a little bit like, mm, like, is this the way to tell the story of this region? <laughs> Cindy seemed to feel that the story's details and perspective failed to take into account the cultural history of the region of Southeast Asia, which ultimately felt disingenuous, naive, and perhaps a little under-researched. Anna's analysis on how the details serve the film and Cindy's critique on the film's perspective echo sentiments that Casey, Allison, and I have shared on other films, that representation is not just a checklist of aesthetic details, and that filmmakers should perhaps prioritize that audiences feel seen rather than details be seen. The next question I asked was what they thought of the land of Kumandra. Clearly, there was a conscious creative choice to blend all of these Southeast Asian cultures into one singular fictional fantastical world, and I was eager to hear their thoughts on that decision. Here's how Anna felt. It felt like a facet of Orientalism where I didn't, I didn't feel like the film was Orientalist. Uh, don't get me wrong, I didn't feel that way, but a facet of Orientalism is where you kind of like lump or group together all these like Asian cultures into kind of like this exotic, you know, uh, ideal. And it kind of did that in a sense where it just blurred together all these different, you know, it kind of felt like they picked and choose, even though it was authentic, I do feel like they did their research and, you know, portrayed it authentically, but just mixing it all together didn't feel like they were giving enough attention to the culture. And like I said, it just, it felt like, uh, representation for its sake um, in this aesthetic way. So yeah, I didn't really like the fact that they kind of, uh, it was all mixed together like that. Cindy also weighed in on this. It's kind of interesting to do that also though, because I know a lot of people like to say things like Asians are all the same. I guess you could also take it in a way that this is reinforcing that. Like each tribe within the movie felt like a melting pot. And then at the end, you know, they abolish all their borders or whatever. It's like an even bigger melting pot. So it's interesting to me to see them take the melting pot approach when I feel like for Asian Americans as a whole, like we don't really see that melting pot that much or like the whole Asian hyphenated American, like, you know, the whole Asian hyphenated American term was coined basically as like 
for political reasons because right, yeah. culturally, yeah, because culturally we have so many differences and so many internal conflicts between different Asian countries and things like that. Anna and Cindy were both rather critical of the creative choice to combine Southeast Asian cultures in the land of Kumandra and Ryan the Last Dragon, with Anna stating that the creative choice has suggestions of Orientalism, whereas Cindy pointed out that the melting pot aspects of Kumandra don't seem to accurately reflect the diversity of the countries represented and the Asian and Asian American diasporas associated with them. Ray was actually more supportive of this creative choice, arguing that the blending of cultures ties into the film's themes on unity and represents how multiple cultural elements are borrowed from each other in Southeast Asia. There were subtle blends that were basically created in this fantasy world, and I feel like to do it that way is very smart of um, Disney because it's like, that, that is truly how Southeast Asia is anyways. I mean, that blend of Southeast Asian culture kind of just also, to me, it, it, it symbolizes like almost a union, <laughs> which is ironic because I know that's what their whole story is about with Kumandra, but um, it's nice to see like sprinkles of the culture without it being disguised in a fantasy world. You can't um, point a culture to the specific like group, like Fang or, or Spine or Claw, all the different groups right, of it. Right. You can't name the culture and say they're the thieves, they're the successful ones, mm-hmm. they're, they're the ones that are military strong, you know, mm-hmm. or th- this group is this, because like, it's all, like I said, it's a blend. Hearing these different takes on the creative choice to blend Southeast Asian cultures into one fantastical world reminded me of the familiar conversations I would have with Allison, Casey, and our guests on previous episodes of Thank You and Joy. Regardless of any opinion on this creative choice to blend Southeast Asian cultures, the conversation around it seems to boil down to this basic conversation. That when it comes to Asian representation in Western media, there always seems to be some sort of trade-off between cultural specificity and universality. By choosing to blend Southeast Asian cultures together in the land of Kumandra, is Disney potentially alienating communities by assimilating them into a generic cultural label for Western audiences? Should we see Raya as a step in the right direction with finally delivering some representation for the Southeast Asian community in media, even if it can, at times, feel catered to the Western gaze? These questions always arise when it comes to Asian American media and finding that balance between catering to Western audiences and appealing to Asian American and Asian audiences. Hearing the differences and responses from Ray, Cindy, and Anna reminded me of this never-ending conversation. While I was between interviews, I noticed one particular detail about the voice cast of Ryan the Last Dragon. With the exception of Kelly Marie Tran, the rest of the voice cast were mostly East Asian. Aquafina, Gemma Chan, Daniel Day Kim, Benedict Wong, Sandra Oh, Lucille Sung were all East Asian actors and actresses voicing seemingly Southeast Asian characters in this film. I asked Anna and Ray for their takes on this. I do feel like it is a little sus where, you know, you want to make this whole film about Southeast representation. You're kind of, you know, marketing it like that. And, you know, Disney is obviously writing on this too, like, you know, uh, we're representing other cultures and, So you keep saying like, this is what you're trying to do, but it's not necessarily showcased in all aspects of the production. So to me, it is kind of, um, I would say, yeah, a little sus where 
<laughs> you, you say you want to make a piece of representation for Southeast Asian, but it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't ring true throughout the whole project, you know, having just Asian people in general, it's sad to say, you know, that just having mm. Asian people in general is, is a, is progress. Like it's sometimes sad to, to have to be like, oh, I mean, it's good enough though, or it's something right. Like that does make me a little bit sad for, for the community where we have to kind of just uh, be happy with these scraps at the table, you know, that we've been given. So I will say that they, they could have done better, you know, um, they could have listed up these communities that they're trying to portray in the movie that aren't portrayed, you know, or are not like, you know, these voice actors who maybe are Southeast Asian, but not as prominent. Obviously they picked, you know, these Asian voice actors or actors who are already kind of part of the industry, but I thought this could have been an opportunity to bring up um, some of those talents that maybe are underrepresented because we are underrepresented as a whole uh, throughout the industry. So yeah, my, my thing is always like, if you're gonna talk the talk, you better walk the walk, you know? <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it didn't rub me the wrong way just because they were Asian and it's not like, hey, you're, you're not really from Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. You don't have the right to talk about, no, it wasn't that like at all. Mm-hmm. And it was more so an understanding of, again, like the lack of representation is also in the workplace and, and in the industry of entertainment. Anna's perspective as an audience member and Ray's perspective from within the entertainment industry reminded me that the predominantly East Asian cast of Ryan the Last Dragon could very much be a symptom of the lack of diversity in the workplace and entertainment industry in itself. In addition, the casting of some of the most high-profile Asian and Asian-American actors and actresses in Hollywood today seems to suggest that the casting focused on drawing as much star power to the film as possible to increase financial returns. Cindy had pointed out one particular detail about the film that I hadn't noticed that probably contributed to why the film wasn't as memorable to her as other Disney films were. One, I think, well, I don't know how Disney decides like which movies get musicals. like when I think about like Coco and Moana and Frozen and things like that just like the memorable parts like a lot of those come from like song and dance Um, and I really liked how both of those movies I think when they include music in them it adds like another layer of like dance styles of like instrumentation of like uh, specific cultural sounds and, and references. Uh, it's just like another layer that adds to it. Cindy felt it was a lost opportunity to not include any musical numbers in Ryan the Last Dragon, despite the fact that musical numbers are so closely associated with other Disney films. She felt that with musical numbers, there could have been another dimension of representation when it comes to musical instruments, song, dance, dance styles, cultural practices and just overall joy expressed in the culture. With her experience in the music industry, I asked Anna to weigh in on this. I can't pinpoint why that that creative decision was made. Um, Just from a production or logistics standpoint, I know that it's a lot of effort to incorporate musical numbers into a film, because not only do you have to write it, record it, you know, fit it into the storyline and, you know, as you know, license it and all this stuff, like, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, it felt like they already somewhat struggled with the storyline or, I don't (laughs) know, I think maybe this was just, like, too much, so maybe it was just too much effort to put, to, like, write songs for this one, 
Um, that's just a, a shot in the dark of me, a, a possible reason why. But I, I think that did contribute to maybe why I didn't feel as emotionally connected or maybe didn't walk away with as much of a em- emotional impact as most of the other Disney films I've seen. We know that music is powerful, even more so than, you know, other forms in particular. It's memorable. Um, you know, it kind of maybe works. I think this is scientific, but it, it activates a different part of your brain. Um, so I do think that was a little piece of the puzzle of why I didn't feel as uh, moved, perhaps, by this film. While Anna and I were having this conversation, we made an interesting revelation about another recent Asian-led Disney film. I guess a question for you, because I didn't watch the live-action Mulan. Did it carry over all the musical numbers into that one? Like, did they have all the singing and stuff? The live-action Mulan did not have singing. And Nikki Caro, the director, had said that she didn't want to include singing because she wanted to prioritize making a quote-unquote more realistic and more historically accurate Mulan, I guess. Interesting. Um, So the way they kind of sidestepped this problem was that they actually took some of the um, melodies from the songs and incorporated it into the score. The score. (laughs) So Yeah, yeah. that's interesting because all the other live-action remakes had all the songs in them. Right, yeah. Yeah, they did. So why was it that two of the most recent Asian-led Disney films did not have any of the musical numbers or musical associations that we so dearly associate with other Disney films? And what was the creative implication that kind of comes out of that with that creative choice? I asked Anna if she had any thoughts on what this creative choice implies, and she had some interesting comments. I do feel like like music to me, and I I think music has a different meaning to everyone, but it does like at its core, it is joyful for me. And I do feel sometimes mainstream media has a little bit of an issue depicting joy in marginalized communities. Like we see this in, mm. um, in like, in, just in our daily news, you know? Like, I think I, I read this somewhere, I can't pinpoint who, but they said like, sometimes the most radical thing you can do is just to be joyful. Like, wow. Like, I see a lot of um, Black activists just, you know, sharing Black joy because, because the media always wants to rep- represent marginalized people as, I don't know, like, not broken. I don't think that's the right word, but yeah, I don't know if that is really the answer, but it's kind of a, a thing I've noticed. <laughs> we may never know the exact behind-the-scenes reasons why musical numbers were not included in Ryan the Last Dragon and the live-action remake of Mulan. But it is interesting to note that the lack of musical numbers impacted Cindy and Anna's emotional connection to Raya. Cindy felt it was a lost cultural opportunity to share more aspects of Southeast Asian culture, while Anna speculated that the lack of musical numbers was a symptom of the media portrayal of non-Western and marginalized communities. Now, it is easy to get lost in nitpicking these flaws in Raya and the Last Dragon, but Ray did bring up an interesting and fair point about the film. To finally see our culture on the big screen, gives us also an opportunity to not only cherish it but to teach you know that's that's also an important aspect of being filipino american southeast asian american is that blend like you mentioned this is an american co- uh, company i think what they were aiming for was to represent and to educate so i mean like 
now it opens up it's so much easier for me to talk about my culture at work now like i don't have to always like insert oh that's filipino filipinos do this this is a filipino language like this is the word like i feel like it's easier to open that door to introduce people more into what it means to be filipino or southeast asian mm-hmm. so what i mean by that is now like i've been getting a lot of my coworkers or even like some of my friends they're like oh what did you think about raya and then uh, what they really want to know is like yeah how was the movie but Tell me more about your culture too. Raya and the Last Dragon, like most cultural milestones in Asian American media representation, is certainly a step in the right direction without being the definitive work of Southeast Asian representation. It's a fun adventure film rooted in cultural detail that will serve as an introduction and representation of Southeast Asian culture to Asian, Asian American, and Western audiences alike. Considering all the films on trauma and the Vietnam War that Hollywood continues to produce, Raya is an excellent positive contrast to previous portrayals of Southeast Asia in Hollywood. It opens up the conversation around the diaspora and media presence of Southeast Asia, allowing Southeast Asian culture the opportunity to elevate into Western consciousness. While the film has its flaws and imperfections that highlight some of the issues that come with westernized Asian representation, these flaws highlight that we should continue to fight and aspire for better and more impactful representation in our future stories. It is our mission at Thank You Enjoy to continue these critical and analytical discussions on the Asian American media we consume. I'd like to thank Cindy, Ray, and Anna for taking time to speak with us and allow for us to continue these fun and engaging conversations, and would like to thank you, the audience, for listening in. This episode of Thank You Enjoy was produced by Casey Lee and Allison Chi and written, recorded, edited, and musically scored by yours truly, Ethan Lee. As always, Thank You Enjoy's graphic and logo was designed by Chris Kim on Instagram at Chuffimation. For more from the Thank You Enjoy podcast, follow us on Instagram at Thank You Enjoy Pod and on Twitter at TYEnjoyPod. Join the conversation at the official Thank You Enjoy Discord server, available on our Instagram link tree, and contact us by email at thankyouenjoypod at gmail.com.